Okay, we're doing now Sunday's portion of Vayakel. This year, as it's a leap year, Vayakel and Pukude are separated. Each one has its own separate week. Generally, of course, they're combined. So what's happening in Vayakel and Pukude? Well, we're going back now to command the Jews about the construction of the temple, meaning in the portions of Truma and Tetzave and the beginning of Kisisa, God gave these commands to Moshe. And now Moshe is giving them over to the Jewish people. Obviously we know this is not being recorded in a chronological order. So we're in chapter 35, verse 1. And Moshe and Moses assembled the entire assembly of the children of Israel and said to them, these are the things that God commanded to do them. So Rashi explains that this assembly, that Moses, that Moshe assembled all the Jewish people the day after Yom Kippur, which actually is a bit more or less like the end of the previous Torah portion. Because Parsha's Kisitsa took us from the sin of the golden calf and then all the mop-up work post that, which means Moses went down the mountain, did what he could to cleanse the damage, went back up for another 40 days and 40 nights, went down, and went back up for another 40 days and 40 nights. And he finally came down for the third set of 40 days and 40 nights on Yom Kippur when God completely forgave the Jews. That is why Yom Kippur is a day designated for atonement, that original day of atonement. Of course, the reason why it was the original day of atonement is because it is, in essence, the day of atonement. So now we're the day after Yom Kippur. And now Moses is giving the Jews the commands of creating this tabernacle, this home for God, because, of course, when we had the giving of the Torah, God penetrated the world of this world to be his home. And in what? In the tabernacle that the Jews are going to construct. So this is the day after Yom Kippur. And then Rashi comments that even though you wouldn't think it from the way the word is written, the Yakel, though it's a bit of an unusual construction, is a construction of Hifil. Hifil is a causative word. Because if he's gathering the Jews, he's not individually one by one gathering them, but he's causing them to be gathered by his speaking to them. And therefore, even though we might not understand it as such, but Vayakil is actually in the causative, the Hifil construction. Next verse, for a period of six days work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for God. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. Now, if you look back when God originally gave Moses the commands of the tabernacle, of construction of the temple in the desert, and of the Shabbos, God actually commanded first the laws constructing the temple, the tabernacle, and then Shabbos. But when Moses gave it over to the Jewish people, he puts the construction law, the laws of the tabernacle, after the laws prohibiting work on the Shabbat. 
And the reason why he switched the order is to emphasize to the Jewish people that the prohibition of working on the Shabbos overrides the command to construct the tabernacle, meaning you cannot do the work of the tabernacle on Shabbos because the prohibition of Shabbos is supreme. Obviously, Moses isn't having a different concept than God. The way God phrased the command said the same thing, but by switching the order, Moses is emphasizing it very clearly to the Jewish people. First point, we can't desecrate the Sabbath. We cannot construct on the Sabbath. And now that we have that clear, let me tell you about the construction. You shall not light fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day. Now this is a very big question because here, <laughs> Moses told them one overarching law of resting on the Shabbos, of which of course there are myriads and myriads and myriads of laws. And then God picked, so to speak, one concept, Moses said here, not lighting a fire. So the question is why? So Rashi says, there's two different ways our presages look at it. One way is to say that lighting a fire is different than all the other laws because all the other laws, for any biblical prohibition, if one does it intentionally with witnesses in mourning, then there's a death penalty. And if one did not have the, one did it intentionally, but without witnesses, then it's kares, which means a, a spiritual cutting off of soul that would lead to an early death. But this prohibition of lighting a fire, though it seemingly is like all the other laws, but is actually different because here the punishment would be just like regular transgression of a negative commandment, which means one doesn't get the death penalty, one gets malchus, lashes. That's the first answer Rashi gives. The rabbis that say that we list this one individual law because it's different than all the others. Others say that no, it's being listed to actually impact all of the laws because there's a rule. There are 13 rules how we interpret the Torah laws. And one of the rules is that anything that was included in the general statement but was removed from the general statement is in order to teach something not just about itself, but about the whole general statement. Meaning we have a general statement. You can't work on Shabbos. And now we're pulling out one specific concept. You can't light a fire. So it can't just be that we're pulling out lighting a fire because of something about lighting a fire, but it has to impact the whole general statement, which from our perspective here is to teach us that lighting a fire, of course, we know there are 39 categories of work forbidden. Lighting a fire is one of the 39. So lighting a fire is distinct from the other 38 categories, and that's why it's listed separately. How does this teach about the whole broad category of you cannot work on the Sabbath? It just says lighting a fire is distinct, which, as we explained, is distinct because it has its own distinct penalty. Everything else you get death for, and here you get lashes. But just as we see that lighting a fire is distinct, so too every type of work is distinct, meaning there's not one broad category work and all of the other 38 are all part of one concept. No, just as lighting a fire is distinct, each one of the 39 categories of work is distinct, and therefore we don't group them together, which would mean in the most practical sense, if someone did 
five different types of work that were forbidden on Shabbos. He's not doing it intentionally. He's not getting courage. He's not getting the death penalty. But he has to actually bring a separate sin offering for each type of work because each one is distinct. We don't group them together. Next verse. Moses said to the entire assembly of the children of Israel, saying, this is the word that God commanded, saying. So I should explain what Moses means. This is what God commanded me, saying that I'm supposed to give this over to you. Because again, really, Moses was commanded all this already, as we learned in the previous portions of Truma and Tesalva and the beginning of Kisisa. Take from yourself a portion for God. Everyone who is generous of heart shall bring it as a gift of God, for God, gold and silver and copper. So we're calling this person generous of heart because your heart makes you generous. And then Rashi says, I already explained all these details of the contribution to the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, where the commands were given, the portions of Trumatitava and the beginning of Pisisa. And therefore now, Rashi's only going to have very few comments because he commented extensively when these commands were given in those previous portions. So again, in Shurumah Tzav, in the beginning of Kisisa, Moses was given all these commands, and now Moses is giving this over to the Jewish people on the day after Yom Kippur. Now we're listing all the other items to be donated. Turquoise wool, and purple wool, and scarlet wool, and linen, and goat's hair, red dyed ramskins, tachash skins, and the shechem wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and raising the smoke of the incense, shoham stones and filling stones for the aphod, it was the apron-like garment for the choshen, the breastplate. Every wise-hearted person among you shall come and make everything that God has commanded. Now we're listing these items. Tabernacle spread, its tent spread, and its cover, its hooks, its beams, its bars, its pillar, and its sockets. So Rashi just has a few comments here. Tabernacle spread. Tabernacle is called the Mishkan in Hebrew. So that's the lowest of, there was like a number of spreads that formed the roofs over the tabernacle. Obviously this was a, a structure that was able to be taken apart and put back together. The roof of it wasn't this uh, stones or built-up thing. It was it was these spreads of skins. So the lowest spread was called actually the Mishkan spread because that was the one that was visible. If you were inside the tabernacle, inside the Mishkan, looking up, that was the spread you saw. And we have what's called the tent spread, which is over that, which is these the panel over that, which was made from the goat skins, and then. The cover, which is over that, was from the hides of the rams and the tachashim. And the around the ark, and it seems poles. And the lid, and the parichas screen. The parichas screen, the parichas was the partition that separated between the holy and the holy of holies. Now, what Rosh explains here is we use the term masach here, the screen, and that could be used to term anything that protects. Either if it's on top of it or it's vertical to it, anything that's protecting, we would use the same 
term of masach as a screen, as a covering. Shulchan, the table, and its poles, and all of its implements, and the lechem hapanim, which we translate as the bread of surfaces, the bread of faces. Rashi says we call it this way because it was sort of constructed like an open box with two of the walls missing. That was like the, the mold that the bread was made in as if the, the sides were standing vertically, vertically at either end. And the menorah, the candelabra of illumination, and its implements, and its lamps, and the oil of illumination, and the implements, Rashi explains, means the tongues and the scoops. And the lamps are the cups that the oil and the lips were put in. And the oil of illumination, Rashi is saying, you also needed to be wise-hearted to produce it, because it wasn't like all the other oils. It was made in this special way, the most purest of the pure of the pure oils. It sort of, it wasn't crushed as olive oil normally is produced. And the mezbeah, the altar for incense, and its poles, and the anointing oil, and the incense spices, and the entrance screen for the entrance of the mishkan, the tabernacle. So the entrance screen means the curtain head that's facing the east, which is how people would enter. The Mizbeach, the altar of the burnt offering, and the copper lattice, and its poles, and all of the implements, and the kir, the washing basin, and its pedestal. The curtains of the courtyard, its pillars, and its pockets, and the screens of the gate of the courtyard. So in the Hebrew here, um, in the Hebrew, the, the pronoun is either going to be masculine or feminine. There's no neuter pronouns in Hebrew. We see here that we have both because the pillar literally is his pillar. Now, the sockets are her sockets. Now, these pronouns are both referring to the word courtyard. So is courtyard masculine, and that's why it says his pillars. Or is courtyard feminine, that's why it says her sockets. She says that it's actually both. It can be masculine or feminine, which is why the pillars are his pillars and the sockets are her sockets. And there are a number of words in the biblical language that are both masculine and feminine. The screen of the gate of the courtyard means there's a curtain spread on the eastern side. Now, the courtyard across was 50 amos wide, an amos being approximately one and a half feet. And 15 were closed off on either side 15 of 15, that's 30, so we have 20 in the middle. And that 20 is where we have this screen here that we're talking about, this entrance screen. Going back to the verses, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the courtyard and their cords. So the pegs were fastened on the ends of the panels into the ground so that they shouldn't move in the wind, as Josh explained previously. And the cords were the ropes for tying them down as we also previously explained. The mesh garments to minister in the tabernacle, the garments of the holy for Aaron, the priest, the Kohen, and the garments of his sons, the Kohanim, the priests. So we have here two different terms of garments. The big day srud, called the mesh garments, as Rashi explained previously, doesn't mean clothing, it means how the holy implements of the temple 
were covered during the time when they were transported. So we had special coverings for the ark, for the table, for the altars, for the menorah. So when they traveled from camp to camp, they were in these special encasements. That's what we mean by these mesh garments, as versus the other term for garments in the verse, which is the clothing of the priest. And the last verse, the entire assembly of the children of Israel left Moses' presence, and what they all went to do was gather whatever they could find to bring and donate and dedicate to the tabernacle because they were all so excited and felt so privileged to be able to take physical items and make from this a home for God, and they could take from their physical items to God's home. So every single one of them ran to find whatever they could from their possessions that would be fit, that would be something that God had enumerated here that they could give to God with which God's home could be constructed.